0: Welcome to Archonnex Sessions, episode 22. This week's episode is devoted to our conversation with the husband and wife team of Todd Williams and Billy Chin. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. So you guys, uh, that was pretty great talk we had, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was so, so gracious of them to lend as much time as they did. And it was just so great hearing them build off of each other. They had such a great rapport. And of course, you kind of, I guess it has to be that way if you're a husband-wife team that has built a firm for over 40 years, but (laughs) it was just amazing to actually hear it.
2: They are just such heroes of mine. And I, I saw them first speak at University of Michigan, God, it's like 23 years ago or so now, but they have always been such heroes of mine. And then I sort of They go to the back of my mind. And then every time I hear one of them speak or see a project, I think, oh, yeah, these guys are amazing. Like their whole approach to materiality and to the way that they work and the way they speak about their work has just been a huge influence on me. I I just it was really amazing to be able to talk to them.
0: I like how we all kind of talked about before speaking with them how we talked about asking them about their partnership outside of work and how that, you know, how their live work relationship functions. But I like how in the middle of our conversation, we all kind of silently agreed that the way that they interacted and responded to these questions just communicated that to such an extent that we didn't even need to answer that, or we didn't even need to ask that anymore because of the sense that we got.
2: Yeah, exactly. You just see how they operate together by listening to them speak.
3: You know, I've always been a fan of their work and The natatorium edition at Cranbrook is one of my favorite projects of theirs. I think what I didn't expect to get from today, because I came with a lot of questions and and some, I won't say cynically, but I think, you know, when I look at them, I feel so not ashamed. It's just like, I mean, these questions are pretty pointed and, and kind of point out some, you know, hit some sore spots, I think. Not directly, but I didn't expect to get a real sense of them in their practice. And, and they really, the way they talk about their work and their relationship, and like Paul said, we, we were really getting something that I didn't anticipate getting in the conversation, an actual, without asking the question and kind of uh, readily apparent that their practice is really much different than I think a lot of people expect. So that was um, really enlightening for me.
0: I really liked their answer to Ken, your signature question at the end about what they're listening to and what they're reading. I feel like that just cemented their validity, you know, and just was so representative of of who they are as architects as well.
1: And they really have their own theoretical foundation for the work that they do. I think, Donna, your comment about not always having them kind of drift to the back of your mind or drift to the back of your memory Mm -hmm. for a while and then arising suddenly being like, oh, wow, like, of course... I think that comes with the fact that they're not grandstanders. They're not iconic creators. They're so invested instead in these individual and highly nuanced material explorations and about the detailing and about deciding things in relationship to all of the other things and then therefore leaving a lot of decisions to be decided throughout that context instead of throughout some type of either theoretical discourse or through their own just style. They don't make a point of having that. They they instead invest in materials and details. And I think that creates the kind of work I can, like the natatorium and these other projects that are just amazing, but don't have that star architectural icon to them.
3: They seem to be the antithesis of whenever you think about the star architect, I think put them in the conversation, but at the same time, you want to hold that away from them because star architect has become that kind of, there's that negative kind of connotation to that. And they really kind of are not that. They are not that. And I think, you know, one of the things I got from them is that. They're so present in their design that they're not outside of their own head thinking about all the stuff that's going on outside. They're very focused on the idea and they're very methodical and and just hearing them answering the question the other one picking up and kind of feeding and just kind of this back and forth this really nice elegant dance that they perform just in the conversation kind of gives you a sense of how they approach their design they even kind of really alluded to that and it's just really really nice
2: (laughs) it was it was yeah I think you're right that there's a sort of sense of grandstanding with architects are thinking about always getting the next job and it's wonderful to think about someone just doing their work you
1: know that's that's why we do it.
0: Well, why don't we just go ahead and listen to the discussion now?
1: Sounds good. I want to just start out from a point on your website where you've listed on your philosophy, which is already kind of a wonderfully refreshing thing to have a short philosophy listed directly on the firm's website. But there's a line that refers to the community that you work with. The quote goes, this work comes from two voices and many voices. I just wanted to hear what inspired that comment and what do you mean by it?
4: Well, we think of architecture as being primarily a collaborative act, and the first collaboration is ours, but it's a collaboration with people in the studio. It's a collaboration with the client, collaboration with those who work on the site and give their lives and love to the projects we make. So we have no illusions that we could do the quality work that we do without those many voices.
5: I think we see this as a sort of top-down, personality-driven studio. That said, it's a very personal one. And I think there is a kind of vision that directs it. But I think we're trying to be authors without being authoritarian.
2: So this is Donna. Hello, Todd. I was speaking with some people yesterday, and one of the comments that came up was that husband-wife teams frequently are asked, oh, well, so did you design this or did, the, you know, did your spouse design it? I wondered if that question has ever come up with you or maybe if early in your careers, people were asking, oh, is this Todd's design or Billy's or if that
4: changed over the years? When we started to do this, we decided that we shouldn't try to divide it, that that was not a healthy thing. And we should not try to describe one person doing one thing and one doing the other. And over the years, we have talked about characteristics that define the way we are, and it may be evident, and it's it's certainly evident to people in the studio, but I don't, with the exception of an occasional drawing, a rug, or something that is so clearly one of our hands than the other, we want to think that it's both at all times.
5: I think that, well, we work together on every single project, but that doesn't mean we do the same thing, and I think that we do have sort of different interests, so we are basically in the same boat, but sort of standing in shifting positions. And I would say that Todd often is the sort of first horse out of the gate or whatever you call it. He's just, he will sort of kind of drop an idea and then I'll probably kind of edit it and talk about it.
4: He often sees it completely differently. sees the shadow side of an idea. And I, But I think because occasionally, you know, the lead comes from one of the might come from Billy, and I might then be her shadow side. I don't like to characterize it that way. But the truth is, yeah, things do often start with me, but I think they end with us. And I think that I am more fascinated, and I just have longer staying power in the trenches, I suppose. Probably more driven to figure things out, to think three-dimensionally. Billy is better able to step back, and that's very, very important. See the bigger picture.
5: Well, I like to have a sense of of clarity. I mean, one of the things that we've been doing, teaching this semester in Arkansas, and I keep on asking the kids for a kind of clear statement of their intention. It's very hard for them to do this. And strangely enough, they don't actually do it very much in school, which is essentially 50 words where you have your, you talk about your basic intention. And I always feel that's very important in the work to try to understand what the sort of dream is or the motive is or what's driving it. So I think that that's very important to me. I think of the work in relation, the architectural work, in relation to a lot of other things that I'm interested in, sort of art, theater. I sort of think about it as related to all the other things that I'm interested in.
4: I, I would say I come in with a kind of wreck of an idea, and Billy sorts the mess out a little, and I was taught in school, maybe you all were that you know by the specifications guy that you didn't really have to draw your building; you could actually write it out and specify it, and they both would come out equally good and equally as architectural. But I would say that Billy does have the ability to clarify things through writing them down or saying them in a very simple way, and it helps to sort both drawings out and our thinking out.
2: So in my mind, very famous essay on slowness that you all wrote. And I'm sorry, I could not find where that was originally published. Was it in a
5: monograph or? It was in a 2G monograph.
2: Okay. I just noticed when I was trying to find it that people on Archonnect a couple years ago posted, hey, has anyone seen that slowness article? I haven't seen it anywhere and I want to find it again. And I have had it saved on my computer for several years now to go over. So Could you talk about that essay on slowness and how that would relate to how you work? That was written at a time when computers were really just starting to come into the office, and it wasn't obviously written completely about the computers, but it was written about a way of approaching the work without making decisions too firmly set in stone before their time, I think, if I'm interpreting correctly. So could you talk a little about that essay?
5: Actually, it started out with an awareness of disappearing things. So it was sort of the disappearance of a kind of a the tools and things that we used, and how, and, and we were slowly shifting over. And with the disappearance of tools, it also was thinking about how we, in using those tools, it forced you to slow down and to.
4: In using the new tools, or the old tools. The
5: old tools, yeah. you needed to slow down, and the it, new and, tools
4: were about speeding up.
5: Right. And so, it was really trying to also talk about a state of mind where you could continue to consider your ideas and you could find those places where things weren't quite gelled yet and you could go back and you could sort of rework them. And so, one of the shifts has been as, you know, the sort of drawings are now printed out every time it looks like everything is fixed and clear and finished. And what we used to do, of course, is sort of erase things. But now what we do is we add things. So we're sort of always with whiteout and with big fat colored magic markers sort of adding things to the drawings. So it's a different way of adding information, but we're still trying to to slow things down by adding layers of information slowly on top of drawings that look like they're facts.
4: So that goes back to the first question about one voice and many voices. I, to the extent possible, I like to wait to make decisions in the field because I think that, you know, the stonemason has something to offer, the plumber has something to offer, and when I'm thinking about a material, stone, for example, I'd rather not decide on the or the stone or the type of the stone until I actually went to the stone yard, or even in the choice of the aggregate, well. Of concrete, you're going to pour a foundation. Well, uh, sorry, what aggregates are available in this area, and does one cost more than the other? And if the aggregate and the concrete might be selected because it's of equal cost, but let's say is darker, we might idealize a slightly darker stone to speak to the aggregate and the concrete. So I'm saying that the materials are talking to you, and the people who you know mine the stone or, or create the concrete all have something to offer. And so, yes, I would like to delay these decisions. And we talk about with clients even today about how this is a the projects are important to us and we want to make sure that the decisions we make are, are well thought out and integrated. And so delaying as much as we can afford to delay is good for the project. That's why we really don't do commercial work because the two drivers are time and money. If there are no greater values than time and money, there's no reason to consider decisions in that modified or modulated way that I just described. You want them instantly.
0: This is Paul. I have a question. This uh, concept of slowness, is this something that you too apply to your lives outside of work? And if so, was it kind of a lifestyle choice that was then applied to your work as architects? Or perhaps did you take that approach in your work into your life.
5: Well, I guess if we really believed in slowness, we wouldn't be living in New York.
4: <laughs> no, I think I would, but I without Billy, I probably wouldn't really have thought about this. I mean, I think my instinct is one of action, but I've bruised enough people and been bruised enough to realize that slowing things down can help a whole lot.
5: So, I think in our I, I mean, we have I suppose different ways of slowing down. I read a huge amount. So that is my way of slowing down. Todd would love to continue talking about a project. And at a certain point, I'll either hold up my book or my Kindle. (laughs) All silence that comes between me and Todd. It's It's sort of my way of putting on the brakes. But we also find other ways of... I think it's by intertwining our personal lives so much with our work lives, strangely enough, it's a kind of way of slowing down.
4: Well, here's another way. I think the the choice to work together in all projects actually slows everything down. I mean, I enjoy being with Billy and I enjoy being with, you know, if we're going to do a lecture, let's do it together. At the same time, I also know that I relish and Billy relishes some time alone, but I think, in general, we prefer to do things together which does slow things down. It's certainly not as efficient, I think, as if we were independent and we could clearly delineate your responsibilities and your strengths versus mine.
5: Well, and I also think that it sounds like it's the opposite, but, you know, sort of, of course, weekends blend into the week. And so we may be in the studio on a Saturday afternoon or part of a Sunday, but it also kind of makes it so that you don't feel like you necessarily have a, a set period of time in which you're trying to accomplish something other than the sort of general schedules that we're all adhering to. It's all kind of a flow, and it sort of flows without that sense of division. That's the kind of more sort of normal way of living life.
4: That's that's one of the reasons I say I would probably still live in New York, because I think that, you know, I can walk home, I only walk home, and it takes 10 minutes. Those 10 minutes are a great way of slowing down If it were 15, I'll I'll divert sometimes and take 15 minutes, and sometimes I make five. But that allows me to have more time in the day for whatever. Uh, So believing in the city means that we can accomplish a great deal more. How do we slow down? Well, we have to make sure inside the city we do slow down. So, yeah, I think it's in our our lives. We've never given each other a physical gift. We only give each other a gift
3: of time. Todd and Billy, this is Ken. You've always been known for pushing the envelope when it comes to materials. And regarding that exploration, are you able to anticipate the results or are you looking for those happy accidents? And do you think there's a value in in, in that kind of technique or process?
5: I think we don't anticipate the results specifically. I think we anticipate the direction. But the final result is pretty much in the hands of others. So we've been working on a a very large sunscreen for uh, our project for the American Embassy in Mexico City. And we wanted to make it out of a medal. But there are many different medals, many different costs, many different sort of levels of...
4: Characters of working the metal, the difficulties of...
5: Weathering. And so we spent a lot of time at Talix College, who are the people who originally cast the facades for the Folk Art Museum. And we look at we had a very large mock-up made out of sheet metal that was flat, sheet metal that was put through a roller, metal that was cast, and it was it's kind of a huge kind of clumsy almost patchwork, but we're looking at what these people can produce and what that material tells us after they produce it. So we had in our heads an idea of a form and a kind of color, but we We needed to work with people to see what could actually be, and they didn't even know what the results were going to be. And now it's in a field, and we're watching it turn um, and patinate naturally.
4: But that whole idea started, actually, I first thought that the sunscreen should be made of poured-in-place concrete, and it turned into a metal sunscreen because of the sequencing of building the building. And they felt that they wanted to pour the building and then attach the, the screen. And I couldn't get them to understand that my idea of coordinating the, the concrete wasn't a brilliant one. And they continued to say, no, this is much better way to build it. You've got to think of it as a steel outriggers that are plas- applied to a concrete frame, and then we will clad the outriggers. And so we went and talked with Telex, and we asked for a list of as many warm metals as they could give us that we could get. And I think there were about 30 and then we asked for cost per pound and we asked for the malleability and when we asked for the melting rates and the uh, the, the rates and, and slowly evolved this, this sunscreen and it's continuing to evolve. So yeah, that's a perfect example. Same thing is true with the stone on the building. We haven't decided on it yet, whether it's coming from Nevada or Mexico, and I will be happy with both. I want the best quality stone at the lowest cost and I want it to work with the coloration of the screen, which is Changing as we speak.
5: So I think that what we're saying is that you see with the screening, we talk, we we sort of knew it was metallic. We wanted it to be warm, but we it's really through working with the people who understand technique and and making it. I mean, we do this with tile, with, you know, with the feet. structure
4: of the building, every part of the building, it's mechanical never, systems. I like to have two completely different approaches.
5: But it's never pre, it's never exactly predetermined. We we don't know enough to be able to say. We want the speckled something finish with mm. you know on a rotated something or other. It it really always comes in partnership, and that goes back to the many voices.
3: One of the criticisms that seems to come from outside the profession is that we really don't care a whole lot about buildings that leak. And one of the questions that I think I have is that when you're using a material that really hasn't been used a whole lot before. And you're detailing in a certain way. How important is the relationship between the the people crafting the material and the installation? Your name doesn't come up a lot when buildings they're talked about leaks or failures or how do you reconcile? And because it seems like from your practice that it really is many voices working together to collaborate on a product that ultimately will satisfy a client and everyone. How important is it for you to? work out those explorations and those details before they get constructed? And how do you deal with failure as a result of something that you may have not seen?
4: Well, I'm, I'm horrified to think that we may do something that isn't built right. And to me, it's so weird, I mean, it, it goes back to, I had a lot of difficulty with my father who always thought that I was, or said I was irresponsible He hated the architecture and said that it was designing buildings that windows were always going to get dirty and, you know, At any rate, um, I I guess I've become him. (laughs) It's the hell out of me to do something that feels incorrect. So, So I really, really spend the time to find out how it should be done right. And I try to modify what we're doing in accordance with how it's going to function.
5: Well, I also think, I mean, Todd and I were talking about the idea of extraordinary and which is, you know, extra and ordinary. And I think in many ways is at a super high level, but it also at a kind of ordinary level. I don't think we try to make things that are risky in that way. Right. But at the same time, whether it's through the materials or the making of the interior space or the light, we're trying to also make them extraordinary. So it's a combination of the two. So it's for I would say that the we've never asked for a we've asked for extraordinary level of craftsmanship, but we've not asked for an extraordinary kind of construction.
4: And I think that we're made mistakes is when I haven't paid attention. Or at least I feel that way. I mean, allowing you know more to drop between court lines of masonry or not or being able to really with the flashing details on on a wall and not sort of double covering the problem that I think I've worked out. But I I think we increasingly look toward ordinary solutions that could be uh, ordinary approaches that could be made to be extraordinary in their context.
2: Todd, can I ask what your father did? I know you grew up in Detroit and went to Cranbrook at the boys' school.
4: Was he an engineer? At well, least was an electrical engineer. Mine was oh, basic engineering. He worked for one company for 40 years. Okay. American metal Products.
2: <laughs> My father's a metallurgist. So yeah, I, I get it.
5: <laughs> the very odd thing is I know in architecture schools forever, people have somehow imagined that Todd was related to the Sherwin-Williams family of paint. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah.
1: This is Amelia. I just wanted to ask a question in relation to the material exploration, how considerations of landscape goes into that relationship? Because I know that, Todd, you were referring to earlier about these kind of slower, or, at, but at the same moment in ways, spontaneous decisions that come with materials like that you can only really make once you're actually on the site. So I was wondering how considerations of landscape factor into that decision and simply just how you your approach to interpreting landscape might've changed over the course of the firm's 40 or so years.
4: Yeah. Well, I think once again, when I came to New York to work for hire, I thought of the building in complete juxtaposition to the landscape, separated from it. And immediately upon leaving, of course, we didn't have chances to work in the landscape. We're just doing interiors. But I began to appreciate, or we began to appreciate the power of landscape. And today, I would say that unless there's an extraordinary reason that a building should be more present than the land, I think the land should dominate.
5: I think it should be in balance.
4: Well, oh yeah, that's nice. Okay. So Billy's right.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Our business is architecture. And the fact is that we are pretty goddamn dominant and we are increasingly building the surface of the earth. And frankly, I'm very, very interested in hardscape and I just am very concerned about paving over and building over the surface of the earth. So I want to err on the other side if I can.
5: Well, we've been, I mean, we're working on a project at Princeton, which is a laboratory, which is usually, I mean, it's a big building, but it's very much about the courtyards and about the courtyards and allowing the buildings to have lower levels that are below grade that open to courtyards. And so very much from the, From the onset of this project, Todd has always talked about this idea of the campus and the importance of a campus within a campus. A campus is is the ground plane, which belongs to everybody. So we always, we posited, you know, if you're talking about the 50-word description of these laboratories, it was really about walking into a garden. So it was a series of gardens. And so the building is actually pressed down into the ground. it has some, obviously, presence above level, but it's about a presence of a kind of two-story building. It's not very high, but it's actually, you know, has four stories.
4: Well, you know, you could say you're doing high-end laboratories to make a machine, but I would say that's not the issue. The issue is to is to make sure that when the scientists are not focused on their work, that they are connected to the land and connected to the campus and to conversations with one another. So the closer you are to the surface of the earth, the better you have as a chance to be able to walk and talk and engage in those spontaneous discussions, not only with one another, but with the place you are.
5: Well, and I think also for people that aren't scientists, we, you know, the idea is that, yeah, one walks through a series of landscapes.
1: So does that perspective, does that follow when you're designing in a more urban landscape or when there simply isn't as much, simply where the presence of... The surrounding buildings is already the overwhelming presence and there isn't as much clear landscape atmosphere to draw upon.
4: Well, it's an interesting problem. Right now we're working on a project at Exeter. If you, if you know that campus, it's actually very, very upright New England buildings and a pretty good one by Luton. And actually, the landscape is not very present in that, and the volumes of the buildings is extremely present. And they gave us a landscape budget of $80,000 for this building, which I thought was small, say minuscule. Anyway, so in this case, we are trying to think of the building as a beehive of activity internally. Uh, Yes, we think it has to have a critical relationship to the landscape, and we haven't figured that out yet. But in general, if I could take... And break the program apart in different pieces. We would do that and create places between the building elements. In certain cases, in, on that campus, for example, it's more important to make a singularity and try to find that relationship with the, the land. And certainly, that's true in the in the urban context. We just haven't had that many examples. I suppose Volkart is hardly an example. Uh, there was no land whatsoever except for the sidewalk at Penn. We made two gardens with tiny little gardens in the back. So that's pretty urban. In Chicago, yeah, I think we did a pretty good job, but clearly these are all urban buildings. Uh, I don't know what I'm answering your question. I think it's very, very important. Try to think about it no matter where you are. If you believe in something, you need to think about it. So
2: we wanted to talk to you a little bit about students and about what you think of the way that architectural education is shifting right now. And Todd, I was um, reviewing some student work yesterday, and I kept feeling like I had to talk about the importance of the ground plane and that they're not paying enough attention to the ground plane. Billy, you mentioned that you're trying to get your students to write and that they're struggling with it. Can you talk a little about architectural education and how you see architectural education operating right now? especially in, in regards to who you're bringing into your firm to hire? And how has it changed from when you all were in school or from when you used to teach
4: previously? I think one of our problems is that we are in, we do teach often, but we tend to see our own students and we tend to teach our way. And it is probably a way that is not completely in sync with others. So in that respect, people may think of us as old-fashioned. We don't give problems that are too large. That is that we want them to be able to develop an interior as well as the exterior of the building and the relationship to the place is crucial. So if those things aren't going, it's not working. And we do find that students like to be taught in our studios. I think that um, and in terms of interns, in terms of people, we'll bring in people as interns. I would actually wish that every school in the country did this. At a time where they took their interns, uh, their students, and they sent them out to work in an office for six to eight months. And we have always had three people here, two to three people here, and they're absolutely crucial. And by them being really, literally within 10 or 15 feet of us, we learned about them and they learn about us. And if they're good and the relationship is good on both sides, that's the person we're going to hire.
5: I think one of the things you said that reminding students of the ground plane, I do see that that's a huge sort of missing thing that's happening with students that everything is flat and everything they design only comes from the table. Nothing ever goes down below the level of, you know, the sidewalk. And they have sort of no sense of the ground moving up or the potential of the ground moving down. The other thing that we are trying to talk with our students about um, is scale. I think one of the things that happens particularly um, I see in a lot of the very large projects is students never have to grapple with human scale. We often have the students actually draw their own rooms, their own sort of where they live, to try to get them to relate what they're designing to actually what they experience because everything becomes so abstract in terms of working with the scale as kind of space their
4: screen. I was thinking I don't have so few students that I haven't enjoyed working with over the years. I mean, I feel that they, they give a huge amount, and I do think that it's correct that many today don't come with that sense of scale, and they tend to come with an incredible sense of the power of the computer, but we try to disabuse them of that because well, I mean, everyone else a, has, well, everyone a, else has taught it to them, so we don't need to teach that to
5: them. That's, right. I mean, it's a it's a great tool, but their hands are great tools too. So you know, we're trying to have them both.
2: Am I correct, Todd, that you were a student of Michael Graves? Yes. Can you say anything? We were all we we spoke to Patrick Burke from his office, and we were all so sad about his passing. Can you tell us a little about him as a teacher and how he taught things like scale and line and form?
4: He was he was terrific. By the way. Just a week before he passed away, I, I, he was high-fiving Millie, so <laughs> <laughs> a lot of life in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was in that first class What he taught at Princeton, and we called it Spots and Dots. He ta- co-taught it with Rich Meyer, and I was by far, the, far from the best student in the class, but he was an amazing teacher, and that first class, he was, I think, really using contemporary art and the history of Albers to bring that to us as kind of the first steps in architectural education. So we were looking and we we're doing exercises that would be like a kind of Jasper Johns or an Al Held exercise or whatever. And that was a very, very gentle launch. The next uh, semester we began to get Richard, by the way, was terrible um, and hardly there. Michael was there all the time. The next semester I had Michael and Peter Eisenman. And that was a powerhouse of teaching, and um, they—I mean—they were there in the studio all the time, and they really set us on fire. And I was many times, you know, in tears. As a little, someone remarked that Michael was a little like a guy in Whiplash. I—I don't—I feel that he,
5: Michael or Peter.
4: No, my, well, they both were. <laughs> because what was happening was that they were challenging us to be the best we could be. And I think Michael did that. Michael particularly was very, very, very instructive in terms of being clear about plans and planning and layering of space. Peter was more obscure and was more kind of cheerleader in his, the way he always is, simultaneously um, supporting us and, and pulling the rug out from under us and, and you know, uh, joking with us. But Michael was a very, very, very warm and generous teacher, and in my opinion, throughout his whole life. And I think that's really true in his studio.
1: And it must have been so rewarding also to realize after you guys in 2013 received the National Medal of Arts that you kind of could relate to Graves on that level as well, because he was the recipient in 1999, I believe.
4: Yeah, no, it's very, I mean, I'm shaken, honestly. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I was really curious to ask you both about that experience because, you know, in general, and especially right now, the public perception of who the architect is and what the profession is like is certainly not in line with what the architects themselves would like it to be, if that's like the softest way as possible to say it. And I wanted to ask you about whether you think receiving an award like the National Medal of Arts, you know, obviously coming from the president, what role do you think of an award like that has in changing the public perception and the national perception of architects do you think it serves a positive role or if or any actual or it actually has any actual effect on um what the basic public perception of architecture is
5: it would be lovely to imagine that that had a an effect on how people perceive architects but i don't think it actually changed how changed in any way how people perceive architects
4: really i mean first i think it needs to be given more frequently to more people if possible. I do think it will change. And the only way it will change public reception is, is if we do something about it ourselves. And I think that's our obligation. By, by receiving such an award, our obligation is to do a better job to make sure that architecture is more important and more valued and is raised in everyone's eyes as being a more noble Worthwhile profession. Well,
5: that's a. I think that's a really good thing to say. I mean, because I think it's in a certain way, if you take it less a, as a sort of an award and more as a kind of challenge.
4: Well, it's the only possible way we can make anything of this, I think. Right. And, and I mean,
5: of course, because we were such huge fans of Barack Obama, it was. I it was just an incredible. Experience, which I was lucky enough to have my mother attend because she's also a huge fan. <laughs> told him and he promised he would give her a, a big hug. And afterwards, he went up to her and gave her a hug. And it was that was I was on cloud nine. <laughs>
3: oh, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. The question I have for you is uh, related to the idea of competitions, and I, I don't know if you enter a lot of competitions and, and if you don't. I mean, do you purposely avoid them or do you find them even a necessary evil? I mean, what is your overall sense of the nature of competitions in general and whether or not a project comes out of that? It seems um, there's a piece today, I think, written from uh, someone at OMA's office talking about how they were disappointed in that a competition that they thought they had a great chance at winning. Ultimately, really was just about elevating the political environment and or discussion, and not really about awarding a competition. They had no intent of actually building this bridge. They just wanted to draw attention to their city. What are your thoughts around that?
4: Well, we've entered very, very few open competitions with not the slightest desire or chance—well, desire but no chance of winning or getting mentioned. We do in limited competitions. We've done all right. Uh, The more limited they are, and the more people. trip over themselves, the better chance we've got. Sometimes we trip over ourselves. But no, it's the relationship to the client and the evolution of a project that to me is of greater interest. So if we do win a competition, I think the project is much the better if it's almost fully rethought after winning it. Because I think that the best architecture comes from a, a deeper, richer dialogue. I do think that the competition, if it's well thought out and I think honestly limited to can bring out some amazing work and can help to everyone to see what might be a better approach than a, a less good approach. And it's the better approach then that should be celebrated and then developed. So I, I think if a competition is the way by which you make efficient, strong architecture, I think it's rarely valuable. The Vietnam Memorial is a good example of one where you know it was a strong decision, but it actually the building and the building is complex in itself. But it is not with the complexity of the buildings that we're talking about. You know, one with super complex interiors, exteriors, mechanical systems, and social agendas.
5: Well, to go back to the issue of slowness, I mean, I think that our buildings develop quite slowly, so it's very hard to to try to present something. We just hope that whatever we do at the end, if we do win a competition, is much better than what the competition uh, projected.
4: Yeah. And it's with the help of everybody else that right. it gets that way. So, yes, I mean, I think they're valuable under the circumstances I described.
5: I mean, if you... Other if, people have other
4: reasons to think they're valuable right. or not valuable. I don't dismiss their thinking.
3: Are you, I mean, going forward, do you put any thought to your legacy and your firm's legacy as you move forward?
5: Actually, I have to say we haven't thought about it. And obviously we're at a point where, you know, people are saying, have you thought about it? Except, like, for instance, things like archives don't exist, sort of except in the most incredibly haphazard fashion. So I think, what we think of as whatever legacy there is, is whatever has been built.
4: And frankly, it would be better if it's in the buildings.
3: Hmm. But I, you know, just in talking to you today, I've been quite humbled by a lot of what you said. And I mean, when people hear this, I think that talking about your process and, and how present you are in that process and the the legacy of... You know, just to the profession in terms of you actually pay your interns, um, you have a strong work-life balance. I mean, those things for a lot of people, they're not going to – maybe the building is ultimately the legacy, but – I think the way your practice works, to me, is a great symbol for a lot of young firms out there. The flashiness and the speed at which the profession moves is one thing, but you can still do fabulous work and be present in the moment and understand where you are. And, and you're talking about slowness. I think a lot about what you said today, and I, I take a, um, a lot away from that, what you said so far. And to me, that's a that's a tremendous statement to say that. And to me, that uh, is very important for me.
5: Oh, well, but, thank and, you. But,
4: but what you're doing then is, is doing doing justice to hope the truth. Um, well, that's really, it's, what you're doing is important. I mean, I, and so taking this time to talk to you is important for us. And it helps us to think more deeply, too.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think if one strips away all of the outside stuff, we are all involved in architecture because of a, a, a special kind of love for it. And I think thinking about how you can continue that love, and sure, it's like a, it's not the sort of great infatuation that you have in architecture school, but it is a, like a, a, you know, sort of a great partnership in life. It is something that is incredibly (laughs) sustaining, Um, particularly if you're not aware of the stuff that's floating by. I mean, we all become jealous, we all become anxious. But there's something that inside us that sort of slowly drives us. And that's, I mean, we are so lucky to have that as something that is a sort of focus of our lives. And those other things are, you know, are very tied in, our, our families, our children. We have, I mean, I think we have three between us, and they're all involved in, in creative fields. And I think that's part of we, all of us being lucky enough to live the world lives that we live. I think our legacy is like, as you said that, I was thinking well, it's also the people that have come through our studio. Yeah. They are our family and they are forever our family. And they, you know, they may come and they go, but they come back and visit. That's kind of a great community too. So it's being part of this community together. And it's the sort of deep roots of the community, I think, that unite us all. And the other stuff can push you back and forth and your, you know, your head can get muddled. But we all have these secrets.
3: Do you mind if I ask you just one last question? I've kind of uh, made this a point to ask a lot of the architects we've talked to, and Billy. I think I read an interview, and you have mentioned it here before, just early in the podcast. What are you reading now, and what are you listening to?
5: Well, we just went to the most amazing four-hour concert of Meredith Monk, who has been around for a long time, and I don't know 50th, if you... this
4: is her 50, 50th year of, of active performance.
5: It's a movement, but primarily vocal. And she's making these sounds that.
4: Her minimalist vocal work comes out at the same time as Steve Reich and Bill Glass and minimalists of the 60s.
5: So she's
4: super alive today.
5: Yeah, so it was, you know, bird sounds and a kind of language that's not a language that sometimes morphs into other languages. And then there were people who were reinterpreting her work. So I think that we are what do we listen to? I I very much like African music.
4: So um, I went but, to the but I but you read all the time. I, my reading is is an occasional book, I have to say. The New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, The New York Times. Pretty pathetic, I apologize. <laughs> I mean, that's mostly it, and I would say one book a month, whereas well, Billy knocks off about two or three a week.
5: I'm reading the Jonathan Letham <laughs> short stories, and I'm reading also a book called Bettyville, which is uh, about this son who goes back to take care of his mother in Missouri. It's a, a sort of, I guess, semi-autobiographical, and it just came out. And I'm also reading a novel about um, Newfoundland, I don't know, but it sort of appealed to me. Called "Colony of Unrequited Dreams," so I re- I do read at once.
1: That sounds amazing. Those are all it we does. will all immediately rush to find our own resources where <laughs> we can get all of those. <laughs> Billy and Todd, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us. I think both on what we've known before about your practice and what you've shared with us today. Not only are you guys practicing exactly what you're preaching, but just hearing the way that you talk to one another is another sign of how you also talk the same walk that you're pushing, is that you really do work off of one another and build ideas off of one another. And it was very, very helpful and very exciting to hear hear more about your work. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
5: Thank you guys. It was a really nice conversation.
0: Yeah. Thank you. All right, we're back. And I think the only way to finish up a great interview like that is to do our introductions. <laughs> How's everybody's week? <laughs>
2: Nice. I am in Arizona this week. I came to see my parents for a brief visit, but was also able to time it so that I could go do critiques at the Arizona State University College of Architecture. The professor, Mark Ryan, and he's also teaching with two other professors. They're doing a third-year studio where they're doing a sort of adaptive reuse of a building in Flagstaff. And it was a really fun critique. Really great, you know, lots of different approaches to dealing with this building. I also was unexpectedly found out that Mark Ryan, who is a friend of mine and I was critiquing with, had previously worked worked with Todd Williams and Billy Chen on their Phoenix Art Museum. He was the local architect here, so it was nice to make that connection and to be able to talk about them a little bit while I was here with the students. So that's all I've been up to this week. Ken, what are you up to?
3: Well, I finished up a small project for a friend of mine, a very small job to help him get through permitting for his winery, and um, mm, cool, it was nothing extravagant. It was a little bit of a complicated process, a two-faced thing, and we had the separated use. It's a little weird, so I helped him out on that, and, and hopefully he went to present it to the code officials today without me. Hopefully that went all right. But mostly, I spent the weekend lamenting the fact that I'm a poor architect. Uh oh! And not only that, but my memory is not as good as it used to be. So I think podcast twenty, we talked at some. Not great length, but about the responsibility of an architect to, you know, in the contracts and uh, whether or not an architect's responsible for leaky buildings and the long conversation ensued or on the site. And, you know, it's interesting. I think the biggest takeaway for me is what either interns or non-professionals want to confer, the kind of responsibility they want to force on architects, either, you know, having us be perfect in some ways and how we detail or see every flaw when you're on site. And it's strange that people who are coming into this profession kind of want to take on more responsibility than is required. You know, just looking at the contracts. And one of the big takeaways I have from this experience is that one, I shouldn't talk out my ass about stuff that I, I don't do a whole lot of work on contracts. So my memory is clearly not good and I shouldn't do that. But the other thing is that I think the pro practice book is probably a good resource for just about everybody. And I think what we think of as responsibility, what people I think anticipate... Our responsibility is way above what is required by the contracts. And I think that's a dangerous place to be And the pro-practice pages in the book around this particular issue. Say, it talk about how we do it inadvertently or consciously by making certain claims, either through letters or through conversation. And it's really interesting that we would do that. Donna, you tell me, I mean, you you deal with this topic more because you've taught this class. I mean, what are your thoughts around some of the conversation that was happening on that?
2: I think there's an ethical reason why we do things, right? You want to have a building that doesn't leak because you want the world to operate in the way that it should. But then there's a responsibility issue that comes down to contracts. And depending on what your contract language says, I mean, I'll use an example of a local builder in my neighborhood whose work is just horrid. He's done this house. It has three little gable windows across the front, and the eaves of the gable edges are within, from the street, it looks like they're within eight inches of each other. So they're practically butted up to each other. Now, that's a design decision that's made a horrible detailing situation because the water's going to go racing down one roof and land smash right onto the eave of the one next to it. And... You're just inviting more water in than if you didn't have those eaves so closely spaced. Now, if the builder does the flashing wrong, yeah, that's going to be his responsibility for not installing flashing per, assuming that the architect, again, this is not an architect, this is a builder. Assuming that the builder's draftsman detailed the flashing correctly and then the contractor screwed it up, well, that's the contractor's mistake and not the architect's or not the designer's. but you could look at the overall shape of those roofs and say that was just a bad design decision. I mean, it is. But again, this guy's not an architect. He's just a builder. He's selling what he thinks people want. I think it's interesting when people complain about flat roofs always leaking and then they turn around to all these buildings that have these endless gables. Every McMansion is the gratuitous gables, right? It's gable here, gable there. Let's do it. Cricket, let's do it. And those things all just invite leaks. Way worse than a flat roof does. You know, means and methods is one thing. Your intent as an architect and designer, and I will say, I'll refer back to our interview with Billy and Todd, they know how or learn how to use the materials well and wisely. And ultimately, that's where our architectural knowledge has to exist.
3: Right. And one of the things I think that in the interview, which I was kind of pointing to, knowing that I was going to be talking about this, was the idea that it's not architect, then builder, and then there's these separate entities that they manage to work together in a way where the manufacturer of the particular product, the the contractor who's assembling it, and the architect are kind of, working together to create something that nobody wants to fail. But I think in a lot of ways, I think there are people on the website who look at this as an an adversarial way and then say, this is legal bullshit. And then it's like, well, but we have to operate in a way that kind of offers us protection. But at the same time, we should be working together because we all want the same end result. We want the building to succeed.
2: Right. And my best experiences as an architect have always been when it was an open book process. So there was not a a hard bid that the contractors had to work to now. If you're doing public work, you don't have an option on that, right? But when there was an open book process where there was not an adversarial relationship, where everyone was being upfront with one another about what things cost how much more this costs than that, and the owner could make an informed decision as a part of a team, those are always the best outcomes. So I had the luxury of being able to work in that realm for a while. And again, if you're doing a lot of commercial work and definitely public work, it's going to be a low bidder situation. And that's where it starts to become very adversarial. Right. And
3: I think just in the pro-practice piece that I was referring to, I put a link on some of my comments, is that standard of reasonable care. And there's this one particular portion that I think is always interesting. This is the one thing I learned from my pro-practice class back in, in mid-90s, architects are not legally required unless they contractually agree to guarantee that a building will function perfectly or that its roof will not leak. There it is. It's simple. Simply stated. As long as we are accommodating and working to apply the code appropriately, and I don't know how many architects out there that spend a lot of time in section or chapter 14, I think it talks about building envelope, but we generally know that if we're designing a building, we are going to make sure that it is weatherproof. That if we have a masonry a cavity wall construction, that we know what the elements are. We should know the general order of the materials in that wall system. And the same thing with the roof. We know it's going to have flashing. We know it's going to have regulates or counterflash. We know all these things. Even if we detail it, there's still a whole host of people involved. I mean, I've actually detailed things and had an expectation that it would be built a certain way. And then I talked to the contractor doing the work and he says, well, that's not the way it's done anymore. This is how it's handled. And where are they getting that information? Well, they're getting it from the information that we provide in the spec, which talks about, for instance, SMACNA, which is the sheet metal manufacturers. So there's a whole division dealing just with sheet metal. That is uh, the trade. It's the industry trade publication. That is one of the best guides out there. If you want to know how to flash a building how to do any of that detailing, you look at that guide. And that's where you kind of develop your details. But if your office you're working at has an, a guide that's 15 years old, that's what you're dealing with.
2: Yeah. To sort of bring it back to the interview we had yeah. today, I'm sure there are a lot of young architects or students listening right now, and they're going, SMACNA, what the hell? Exactly. SMACNA is the, it's like sheet metal associates contractors guide or something like that. And it's a book of details that tells you exactly what this material is and how it needs to be utilized. And you need to understand that. You need to understand the language. Your contractors are going to be talking, speaking when they are doing things. But you also need to understand something about this, like, beautiful nature of how many ways metal can be used. It can be pounded. It can be patinaed. It can be, you know, Todd and Billy went off on this whole thing about what form will the metal take. It's the whole thing of having to understand how to build a functional fire pit so you can grill some food and also be able to discuss the poetics of fire. We have to cover the entire realm of those things as architects. So Todd and Billy have obviously been able to do a great job of being able to keep control of some of that in their work. They are able to work with um, clients who allow them to work closely with their craftsmen. And that to me is the ideal place to be practicing.
1: Very well put. I definitely like that. I like that also, no doubt, Todd and Billy have Done all <laughs> have gone through their own outline of what the things that they are most frustrated by and trying to communicate between themselves and contractors and sourcing materials and everything. And that the only thing in this situation that can help is simply familiarizing yourself with as much information as possible of how these things are supposed to work. And yeah, just being able to make those informed decisions so that later on you're able to defend them and and have the best application. And then make poetry. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then you can wax poetic about whatever
3: sausages you have on the (laughs) fire.
2: Oh, I just, yeah, that talking with them was so great. They're amazing.
3: One of the things I thought was very interesting in doing my research on them, and I bought a book today called Wunderkammer. I think Todd Williams put together. They don't do a lot of books.
1: Well, yeah, that they were not big on the archiving yeah. aspect either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was shocking to me, actually.
3: That took me back a little bit. I'm like, wait. Some of the questions I was thinking about was in keeping Graves in my mind and, and knowing what the some of the concerns of some of the other heads of firms who are octogenarians and older and and thinking about how those firms move forward as those individuals start to move away from practicing. And so to hear them say that they're not archiving, I don't know why that seemed important to me, but. I'm always thinking about mortality and and when you get in your mid-40s and you start thinking about your parents' mortality and you start thinking about your own and and I'm sure those are conversations that they're having with themselves and and to hear that they're not archiving was a little, you know, whoa.
2: (laughs) Well, I just posted on Thread Central this week that I'm in a struggle right now in my life between wanting to really hold on to these objects that have some kind of importance to me, they have a memory in them, embedded within them, and just wanting to let go of everything and just say, none of the material things matter. I'm not sure architects should live in that place where they think that material things don't matter because in my work, that's the only thing that matters in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was shocked by them not keeping their archives. But on the other hand, I, you know, Todd said the building is the legacy. That's what they want people to see and learn from and remember. So I don't know. I still need to ponder that interview a little more.
3: As long as we can keep Dylan Scafidio away from their buildings, they'll have a legacy.
2: Oh, God, shut up. Shut up.
3: <laughs> <Okay>.
2: <laughs> no. Stop. We were all feeling so warm and fuzzy and good, Ken. And then that black, black heart. <laughs> anyway, it's been a good, good week, you guys. It has been.
0: Well, I think that's our episode for this week. Thanks to everybody for listening. As always, you can send questions, comments, suggestions to us via Twitter with hashtag Archonnect You can send us an email to connect at RConnect.com. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing on iTunes. That way you actually get the podcast a day before everybody else when you subscribe and leave a comment and a rating on iTunes. We really appreciate that. Well, we'll be back next week. I may not be because I'll be out of the country and I don't know if I'm gonna have access, but Donna, Amelia, and Ken will we'll the... ventriloquism for you. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> Do an impression throughout the entirety of thing.
0: All right. Well, we'll talk to you then. Thanks.
1: Great. Thanks. Have a good week you
2: guys. Have fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.